Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. On today's episode, we have a friend of ours, Tony Ambler Wright. So uh, turn it over to you, Tony, and introduce yourself to the listeners, please. What's up, fellas? Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, it's good to finally get this scheduled. I think this makes the third attempt at this. <laughs> as they say, third time's a charm. But Dennis, Neil, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, really been looking forward to uh, to getting on and, and rapping with you guys for a bit. So yeah, my name is Tony Ambler Wright, industry veteran, going on 22 years now in fitness and performance industry. I've been fortunate enough to work in a variety of different environments and in a variety of different capacities, which has been really fun, really exciting. And been good to keep things fresh and keep me learning and evolving as a professional and and as a person. So, you know, hopefully we can share some of our collective experiences today. Looking forward to talking about stick mobility, as well as, you know, what I do now currently for work, which is working for the National Academy of Sports Medicine as a content strategist and master instructor. Been with them full-time now, I guess, since September, uh, August or September. Gosh, the, the months are just running together. So that's been really fun. Uh, being in that position, I think, just helped catalyze you know us coming together on on your show. And then I know we're going to return the favor, and I get to have you guys on one of our shows, which will be great. Yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. Short, short and sweet. If there's anything else you want to know? I'll be happy. So, happy. To hear. So where where'd you get your start though? So where was your where's your very uh, first starting position? Yeah. So 20 plus years in the industry, you know, got into it at 24 hour fitness, like, like many trainers. I don't know now. Yeah. (laughs) Staring at, staring at uh, one right here, like looking in the mirror, but you know, good friend of ours, Match Melka, you know, that's where uh, he and I met was at 24 hour fitness in Citrus Heights, California, just outside Sacramento, which interestingly enough was the second ever 24 hour fitness location, which is kind of interesting, you know, Bay Bay area company, but the second location ever was this you know, small suburb of Sacramento, but yeah, got my start in, uh, in 99 at 24 hour fitness. I was a competitive athlete in, in high school, played a variety of different sports, but ultimately ended on endurance sports. So I ran track cross country, got into mountain biking, you know, at the time wasn't a, as hugely popular as it is now is just starting to, to get more popular. And so always had an interest in that. And, and, you know, throughout my athletic career got injured and through rehab and dealing with those injuries, I just gained a, an interest in the body, how it works, uh, how to you know, make it stronger, more resilient, and what to do to help uh, maximize performance. And so I knew in high school that I wanted to do something related to exercise science. So the original thought was to go into physical therapy. At the time, it was super competitive, not that it isn't still really competitive, but back in the late 90s, you know, everything was master's degree. So you'd get your undergrad and pre-physical therapy, and then there might be 30 people accepted to the PT program. And so super competitive, quickly realized that I probably wouldn't make it (laughs) is uh, just based on my study habits, based on the type of student that I was in college. So I changed my major a couple of times, ended up going back to exercise science, just couldn't get away from it. You know, buddy I worked with, uh, he and I used to work out and train together and he had gotten his degree in exercise science from Chico state and ended up getting a job at 24 hour fitness. And, you know, when we'd train and work out together, you know, he'd tell me how things were going and it just seemed like such a, such a fun thing. And I was like, you know what, this is, this is what I'm meant to do. Switch majors back to exercise science, asked him if he could hook me up, uh, try and hook me up with an interview at, at 24 hour. And he did, and I was fortunate enough to to get hired on. So got my degree in in exercise science. Worked at the twenty four hour fitness location for seven years, and during that time, you know, it was such a great time in the industry. You know, thinking back on it, you know, look at it with a bit of nostalgia. Kind of the advent of you know, functional training, if you will. You know, a lot of stuff that we kind of take for granted now was just starting or becoming more prevalent, more popular in the clubs back then. Kettlebells, like I said, functional training, foam rolling or soft tissue work. Now foam rollers are everywhere, but you would never, Mm -hmm. you very rarely see them in clubs back in the the late 90s, early 2000s. And so anyway, it was a fun time to be in the industry. And a large part of what helped shape me as a professional was the NASM education. And so I got certified through a few different organizations 
when I started up, uh, obviously 24 hour fitness had their own in-house cert. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was an NASM slant to that, which, you know, was quite a bit different than, than it is now got certified through ISSA and then through a, a more formal NASM CPT program. And at that time they had just started a transition to the OPT model or optimum performance training model and using that as the foundation for their, their personal trainer curriculum and education. And it just, it made sense to me. Something just clicked and I was like, this makes a ton of sense. You know, movement is the foundation for everything we do as, as fitness professionals. And so if, if your clients aren't moving optimally, or if you're not working towards, you know, enhancing or improving their movement while they're trying to achieve their other goals, then we're likely going to miss the mark or we're, we're not going to enable them to achieve their full potential. And so just that whole premise with movement being the cornerstone and the foundation for a training program just resonated, made a lot of sense to me. And so I implemented the OPT model from then on with all my clients and, and had great success, was able to work with a wide variety, diverse population of clients. You know, at that point, I was like, I'm loving this. I want other trainers to see the benefit and experience the benefit with their clients. And so at that point, I was interested in pursuing an opportunity to, to work for NASM as part of their education team. So it took me a few years, but in 2005, I was hired on as one of their master instructors, assisting with content development and really the primary job of going and, and teaching our live workshops. So really putting what's in the in the courses, in the textbooks, in the videos, really bringing that to life and putting it into practice. That was our, our primary focus uh, as the workshop instructors. Anyway, met my wife, Wendy Batts. She's also uh, an, a master instructor, now a regional master instructor for NASM. And through our relationship that took me from Cali to Phoenix, Arizona, once in Phoenix, I worked for Lifetime Fitness as a personal trainer and regional education specialist, a regional training specialist for them, where I helped onboard and train all of the new hire PTs, personal trainers in the West region at the time. So it was Arizona, Colorado, and Utah. You know, the nice thing about being in Phoenix was NASM was headquartered there. And I was fortunate enough to be able to work a little more closely with Dr. Mike Clark, who uh, created the NASM OPT model and was the, uh, the president and CEO of NASM at the time. Through that was afforded some opportunities working with professional athletes. So, you know, back in the early to mid 2000s, the Phoenix Suns were kind of lauded as having the the premier sports medicine staff in not just the NBA, but all professional sports. When you looked at, you know, man games missed to injury, being able to revitalize, you know, players who may have been considered past their prime, being able to revitalize them just by, you know, focusing on getting them to move right and, and train properly. And so Dr. Clark was the team physical therapist for the Phoenix Suns. And as players would come through Phoenix, if they got traded or transitioned to other teams, many of them still had off-season homes there. And so when they'd come home for the off-season, they'd ask for recommendations or referrals for people to train with who you know, followed a similar approach to what they had experienced when they were with the Suns. And so that led me to some opportunities working with, with some NBA guys in the off-season and being able to implement fully integrated kind of comprehensive approach to to programming from you know corrective exercise if you will all the way through stabilization strength and power to be able to optimize and prepare them for the the demands of the upcoming season so that was kind of my first taste uh, and experience working with professional athletes and found I really enjoyed it and wanted to do more of it and so after a few years i guess uh, 5 years at lifetime Dr. Clark started another company. So NASM went through an acquisition. And as part of that acquisition, he stayed on for a time, but then he started another business that my wife, Wendy, worked for. And that business was acquired by a company that was based here in Atlanta, which is where we live now. We live uh, just north of Atlanta and Roswell. But that that brought us to uh, the East Coast. During that transition, it was, what, 2011, NBA lockout season. And so while Wendy had a job opportunity waiting for her here in Atlanta, I hadn't really lined anything up yet. I was actually going to stay behind because we were trying to sell our house in Phoenix and I was trying to make sure all my clients were taken care of and, and that I was leaving things the right way at lifetime. Anyway, it was a lockout. And prior to leaving Phoenix, I had an opportunity to work with an NBA player who was still with Phoenix at the time. 
And I had a colleague of mine who was working with another player who was uh, with Phoenix and then had been traded to New York to the Knicks uh, the previous year, uh, or not traded, he was signed rather by the Knicks. Anyway, he, uh, he had an opportunity to, to travel and work with professional polo player of all, uh, of all things, uh, world, <laughs> world champion polo player. It was just something that he couldn't pass up. And so his client needed somebody to work with him full time and I needed something to do. <laughs> so it kind of kind of worked out. One thing I I'd, uh, gotten a license to practice manual therapy, massage therapy, and so that was another skill set that that we had kind of added. And that my my buddy and colleague Trevor was doing was you know integrated manual therapy, corrective exercise, and then performance training. So essentially, very similar to what these guys were getting when they were with the the team, the Suns, and that's the system that that Dr. Clark had implemented there, and and. We were fortunate enough to get mentored by him. Anyway, Trev went to go uh, work with his polo player client. and I was fortunate enough to be able to work with his client in the NBA who was playing for the Knicks at the time. And so during the lockout, he was training out of Florida, which is where his home was and where he was living. And so my wife went to Atlanta and then I went to Florida. And really the plan was to be there as long as we needed to be. Wasn't sure how long the lockout was going to last. And then about four weeks into my time there, in Florida, the, the lockout ended and they had to report to training camp. And so my client uh, asked if I'd be willing to, to go up to New York and continue to work with him. I said, yeah, that'd be great. And uh, we arranged it so that I was integrated with, with the team and was able to, to continue to work with him and, and travel with the team. And, and you know, it was kind of fully integrated into the team environment, which isn't all that common. So I was really, really lucky to, to have been able to do that and really really fortunate that the Knicks were open enough to, uh, to allowing me to do that and, you know, kind of be a part of that inner circle. It uh, wasn't easy. Certainly never is when you have uh, somebody from the outside coming in, kind of being forced in uh, essentially, but they were really great to me and, and it was a good experience. And so, yeah, so I was up in New York for a bit and then my time with the Knicks came to an end and that led me to an opportunity to do the same thing with, with a very high profile Yankee. So I stayed in New York. I was basically in New York for you know, almost three years. During that 2011, 2012 year, I think I was home, came home to Atlanta like 25 days. All the other time I was either in New York or on the road traveling and, and working with clients. And so that was kind of from fitness into working with elite athletes and performance. And, and then right around 2013, Dr. Clark started another business called Fusionetics, which essentially was a software as a service business that integrated assessment technology and programming technology into a platform that could be licensed to teams, organizations, sports medicine facilities, colleges and universities, and so forth. And so he, he asked if, if me and my buddy Trevor wanted to be a part of, uh, of that business, and we thought it would be a great thing to, uh, to do. And so the clients that we were seeing at the time, we kind of rolled into, into Fusionetics. They became Fusionetics clients. And that first year, we continued to travel and, and train and work with them. And then uh, once the software platform was developed, then you know, my roles and responsibilities kind of shifted and transitioned more towards supporting that, you know, whether it was training and development, um, helping with uh, account implementation. You know, if we did work with any teams or organizations, we would certainly go out and do on-site visits and you know, we'd still work with athletes if they requested it, but it was really more about uh, trying to get that software uh, and system implemented with our different clients and customers. And so uh, we had a facility here in the you know North Atlanta area, and, and we, we continued to see clients. So still got my hands dirty a little bit, training and, and doing therapy. And I was with Fusionetics, I guess, until it'll have been a year ago this month. So I was with Fusionetics until last February. And, and then came on board full-time with NASM in August. So nice. never really left fitness. You know, was still part of the NASM master instructor team through all of that. And, you know, really blessed to be able to continue to work with, uh, with that organization and that group of individuals and, and colleagues there. And so really happy where, where I'm at now and, and back more in the, you know, definitely more in the fitness uh, focused arena less so with, uh, with athletes and the account support, software support type stuff. How much training are you actually doing now? I mean, it sounds like you've transitioned to more kind of behind the screen type stuff. You know, there was that period of time between last, uh, I guess, March and, and August where, where I really wasn't doing anything full time. And so I was like, what the heck am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life? Right after 
my time ended at Fusionetics, you know, COVID, COVID hit full bore and, you know, the world as we know it kind of changed. And after a few months, started getting some texts and calls from uh, former clients like, Hey, can you see me? You know, they were still active, still training, but like, yeah, my body's beat up. I need some therapy. I need some training. Are you seeing anybody? And so I started seeing clients again out of our home office that led to some referrals. And so I actually built up pretty significant training schedule between, I'd say, you know, May when the, you know, restrictions were kind of lifted here in Georgia and in August. And so got into training uh, quite a bit, actually. And then, you know, since then, and since coming on full-time at NASM, I haven't been, haven't been able to do that as much. Although if it's early in the morning or sometimes on weekends, I'll still have, uh, we'll still have clients come to the house and I'll still continue to work with them. Also leveraging, you know, NASM has a training app. And so I can set them up on programs that they can access through the, the application. And so I am still getting a, a bit of training, uh, certainly not as much as it was, you know, six months ago. You know, I think if you're working in content development, education, instruction, like we do, yeah, you have to, you have to still continue to practice your craft and develop your skills, you know, and I've certainly grown as a practitioner, as a, as a trainer over the last six months, and I want to continue to do so. And so I just think that in order to be an effective educator and content creator, uh, you need to be actually doing it too. So yeah, so it's been fun. I'm still training a little bit. It's not, you know, certainly not full-time, but it's enough to keep me sharp uh, or sharp as I ever was, I guess. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so it's been, it's been fun, but you know, the, the great thing too, and you know, I love about you guys and stick mobility and your system is that it just fits in seamlessly with how I approach training and, and working with my clients. And so so I've always, uh, you know, obviously we've known each other for quite a long time, but I've just always felt that there was uh, such alignment and such synergy between stick mobility and then the, the NASM approach to assessment and programming. So it's been fun getting in using sticks, uh, using the sticks with clients. I've had quite a few of my clients purchase sticks and uh, they love it too. So it's, it's been fun. It's been good. How do you train a polo player? <laughs> That's that's interesting because I'd be like, hmm. Gosh, I should probably introduce you guys to to Trevor. He could talk to you more about it. You know, it's interesting. His client at the time, Polo was obviously something he was driven and very interested in doing. He actually had two teams. He had he owned a team that was here that was based here in the States, and he owned one that was based in Europe. Because he was not only an owner of the team, but he also was a player on the team. I guess one of the perks, right? If you if you own the team, you can you can play on it. Two of won championships uh, in both of these leagues or associations. I'm not sure what the exact term was because I, I never worked with Lyndon much, but world champion, polo player, uh, billionaire businessman by day. So some of the companies that, that he owned or managed, uh, we would all be very familiar with. And so anyway, polo was uh, his passion and his sport and he developed some hip, hip issues and, and ultimately mm-hmm, yeah. was going to need a hip replacement and oh. was basically trying to delay that as much as possible. He was also into jujitsu, which, you know, if you think of the positions in jujitsu, yeah. sitting on a horse are going to be very similar, similar yeah. st- stress to the hip. And so the original uh, intent and focus was just to keep him healthy enough to make it through the season so they could, you know, win the championship and he could get all the accolades and enjoyment from, from that, that, that he could. Quite a bit of his program was very manual therapy focused, just to ensure that you know when you have trauma, when you have pain, you know the body's response to that is going to be to try to protect the area. And so you're going to see range of motion loss. If there are any you know bony or structural changes to the hip that can limit range of motion. And so you know you're just working against all those things. And so it's you know like I said, ultimately he's going to have to have procedure done, but it was just you know, whatever he could do to delay that. And so. A lot of it was just very simple, low intensity, low complexity training and and exercise. I mean, if you just think, so a lot of it was therapy on the table. And then I know we'll we'll probably get into this because we got into it the the first time (laughs) we tried to record this, but, you know, it's one thing to develop range of motion or achieve improved range of motion, but then you have to be able to control that new range. Mm-hmm. And the term would be mobility, I guess, is kind of, uh, I'd say that's probably the, the delineation for uh, most people between flexibility and mobility. So, you know, flexibility is your capacity to, or is the extensibility of the tissues. It gives you kind of the capacity to move through a particular range of motion. Mobility is your ability to, you know, 
express that and use it to its full uh, fullest potential and control it. And so with Trevor and you know what we would do on the on the manual therapy side is we would start you know, typically we start every session with with an assessment. And over time, you you kind of learn. Okay, what are the key areas you need to assess prior to a session, so you're not looking at everything. Kind of narrow down your focus. But basically, you know, you'd look at key things like ankle dorsiflexion, knee extension, hip internal external rotation, hip extension, and any other areas that you think were relevant. Hip abduction, and uh, we would use a goniometer. Which you guys are you guys familiar with that or? You know, for the listeners who might not be, it's basically you know a protractor for your joints. It measures joint angles, and so we would measure or assess using a goniometer. And based on the numbers that day, that would help guide the therapy that uh, that we would do. Some days be better than others, and you know therefore you would do less, or you might have to do something different. And so you know once they got that range of motion back with the therapy, then they would do corrective exercise, isolated movement patterns for the muscles uh, around the targeted joint. So hip internal rotation, you know, would be a key measurement there that we would work on. And so once you achieve that improved hip internal, you know, how do you reinforce that? Well, it depends on some of the other stuff that's going on. One side, you know, if you look at the orientation of the pelvis, you know, if one side of the pelvis is anteriorly rotated, the other side then is, is relatively posteriorly rotated. And so they could both, both sides could have limited internal rotation, but they would be caused by two different things, right? The, the side that's anteriorly rotated might be more adductor TFL glute minimus restriction just due to compression of the, the hip. And then on the posteriorly rotated side, you might be looking more at piriformis, biceps femoris, adductor magnus. And so all that would kind of guide what you did from a, a therapy flexibility standpoint. And then to reinforce that new range, you would want to activate the, the opposing muscles to the ones you just did the therapy and, and stretching or flexibility work on to you know reinforce that new range, help reestablish some neuromuscular control. And then you know mobility is one thing when you're laying down on a table. It's another thing to use it in a, a functional position. Then you would, uh, you know, we'd follow that up with some quote unquote functional patterns that would be relevant to whatever he was doing that day in a training session or whatever he needed to do to, to get ready to ride. And so it was really basic early on for Lyndon. And then, you know, as those things improved, then, you know, his training became more intense and came focused more on developing strength and power and some of the other things you would need. But initially it was just, you know, can you sustain riding through a match and, yeah. uh, recover from that appropriately without getting beat up too badly. But then when you think about, you know, the other just riding in general, equestrian uh, sports are pretty big here in Georgia around me. Uh, oh, okay. You know, if you just look at the, the demand on core stability, you know, not having a firm foundation from which to create that stability, then you have to kind of get creative with you know, how you train and, and improve those things. But, you know, a lot of tight adductors, a lot of tight uh, hip yeah. rotors, and so you need to work on, you know, postural endurance, core endurance, range of motion in, uh, in the hips and, you know, and then focusing on all the, you know, all the muscles that tend to become, you know, let's say down-regulated or not used as much. You want to make sure you're addressing those in the training program just to, to offset all the time spent riding and training. But depending on the type of sport or event that rider does, I mean, that would also influence, uh, influence what you do from a training perspective. You know, if you're doing agility stuff, jumping stuff yeah. uh, with the horse, I mean, you're dealing with a very large animal and a lot of forces being imparted on, on the body is uh, you have to guide, uh, guide the horse uh, to do yeah. what it needs to do. So yeah, I think a lot of people have this misconception that they're sitting in the saddle and most of the time they're actually they're hovering above, above the right. saddle. So, I mean, you think about the endurance of the hip tissues that you need. Yeah, exactly. And then you think the calf musculature, I mean, all of that as you're, as you're holding those positions isometrically and manipulating yourself around the horse and trying to manipulate the horse. Yeah. The endurance is needed is crazy. Well, polo riders can't be very big, right? No. Typically. No. Typically. Be, yeah. 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 They're not sitting at 250. No, no. Because <laughs> the horse would be like, get the hell off. Well, so yeah. you imagine too, just their hip structure is going to be a little bit smaller and they got to be able to, you know, wrap their legs around the horse. So there's going to be more stress that way too. Exactly. Well, you also have like, because when I rode horses growing up on the ranch, the, a lot of the guys, some of the guys were bow legged. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have that 
you you saw adaptation taking place uh, structurally there. But yeah, what a dynamic difference between training a basketball player and training a yeah. polo player. You know, yeah. just from from a performance and capacity perspective, very very different. But you know, the interesting thing is how you approach getting them, how you approach trying to optimize them to be able to mm-hmm. perform and, and do what they need to do is is very similar. And so that's where yeah, I love that you guys have a system. That's where you know at NASM we have a system. That was something that Dr. Clark was very big on was systems. And so when you systematize something, that allows you to get reproducible results. And it allows uh, it provides you a form of checks and balances. Because if you continue to do the same thing repeatedly, then if something doesn't work or something, if the outcomes aren't what you expect, then it makes it easier to kind of retrace uh, you know, where you may need to modify or adjust things. And so, yeah, it didn't matter whether... You know, we were working, whether Trevor was working with him or he was working with, you know, he's had, he's worked with an unbelievable roster of clients. Yeah. Whether it was gold medal sprinter, famous basketball players, uh, polo players, baseball athletes, um, whoever it was that we're working with, we would start every session the same way. All right. Let's see what your, let's see what your numbers are. Let's see what we need to focus on and work and target today to get you moving right. And then from there, we we would get into you know whatever the training program called for, and, and obviously that would be specific, uh, more specific to the athlete and, and what their needs are. Well, I know when uh, when you were working with uh, our buddy Matt at at Twenty Four Hour Fitness, he said that he turned his legs into springs using the OPT model. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously he's a pretty good athlete to begin with, and so there may have just been some detraining going on with him for a while, right? Uh, so once he just started working out, once he just started working out consistently again, you know, probably yeah. got his bounce back. But because he played yeah. wide receiver in high school too, besides basketball, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. So he was a great, you know, great athlete, phenomenal, uh, phenomenal athlete. Yeah, I mean, specific to the OPT model, I guess we've been talking about it, but uh, don't know how how much people know uh, specifically what it is. And yeah, the whole premise of the the OPT or optimum performance training model, as I mentioned earlier, it's the foundation is is human movement, and so you want to optimize a human uh, movement system to be able to allow it to express its its full potential. And so you know we know just based on the evidence that individuals who have certain movement tendencies they have to work harder when they play a particular sport or perform a particular activity. They may be at greater risk for certain non-contact injuries if they display certain movement tendencies or lack certain ranges of motion and different different joints and in different positions. And some interesting new research shows too that poor movers overall show greater systemic stress. So when you look at like cortisol levels, for example, individuals who have poor movement tendencies have higher circulating cortisol. And, and, and so just Obviously, it kind of makes sense, you know, if you're moving and your joints aren't aren't optimized to to move through their full range of motion. You've got certain muscle imbalances where you know you've kind of adapted to whatever whatever it is you do day to day. If you go to do something that isn't aligned with that, well, that's going to create some stress. And and that, that's not to say that you know not all stress is bad, right? That's what that's mm-hmm. how you get better and how you improve. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's the kind of the underlying tenet of the OPT model is you got to. You got to try and focus on getting your clients to move well before and move better before you are able to maximize strength, speed, agility, power, all the you know qualities that we look to look to improve with our clients and, and athletes. And you know it's not unlike many of the other systems that are out there. And so I, you, you know uh, we've talked about this before too. Is that a lot of it's just semantics, but if there's been a you know an ever increasing focus on movement and recovery and mobility, which is great. And there are a lot of different camps and different organizations and companies that focus on that. And if you strip it all, if you strip it all back, you know, we're probably saying 90% of the same stuff might be using different mm-hmm. terms, might be framing it a little bit differently, but at the end of the day, you know, we're focused on, on the same things. And so that's what I hope to, you know, bring more light to, at least in my, my role uh, now at NASM is, and working with partners like you and and others is to show the similarities and in perspective. I think NASM for a long time has gotten maybe a somewhat of a bad rap as being more of an exclusive type training system. 
where you know very rigid. This is the only way to do things, and you know we provide a system because a lot of pro- professionals, a lot of trainers need that. You know, they don't know what to do, and so that's basically a blueprint. It's a recipe, but like any recipe, you can you can make it your own too. And so you know the OPT model uh, is very inclusive, and again, that's why I love what you guys do because it aligns so well with uh, with our approach to to training and programming movement first. And then, you know, when you look at the different qualities and and adaptations that you can achieve from a training program, the OPT model consists of, you know, six phases of of training. The the first phase is really more of a muscular endurance phase. Uh, We call it stabilization endurance, where essentially the underlying focus is on improving neuromuscular control, improving movement quality, in all three planes of motion and at typically focusing more on uh, developing uh, more resilient and uh, more robust tissue health where, you know, if you look at some of the variables for that, for that first phase, higher repetition range, obviously for, for the endurance piece and slower tempos with an emphasis on eccentric and isometric uh, muscle action, which, you know, Dennis, we talked about this last time is that, yeah, that's an often overlooked component of uh, people's training is the speed at which they move. And, you know, especially if you're dealing with, with early ex- uh, or people new to a fitness program, the non-contractile tissues are the ones that take the longest to adapt to a training program. And so when increase the intensity or volume of a program too much too soon for somebody's capacity at that time, that's when you run into increased tendon stress. You start, you know, running into those soft tissue, soft tissue injuries or, you know, soft tissue issues that could have been likely could have been mitigated or minimized if things had been progressed properly. And so that's the the focus of that first phase. You know, again, I think a lot of it is how you know we positioned it too. Uh, I think people got the the idea or the maybe the mis- misperception or misconception that it's all about training on unstable surfaces and mm-hmm. doing all sorts of crazy stuff, which is a method of progression in that phase. But stabilization is is dictated by the person's ability, uh, whoever it is that you're working with, that's dictated by their ability to maintain proper form and alignment execution of the, the pattern that you're having them perform. And so if I was working with my mother, for example, who's not very, you know, conditioned physically, I could put her in a, you know, seated machine and that might be her limit of stability at that point in time is just being able to maintain good posture and alignment in that machine and working through whatever pattern it is. Let's say it's a rowing pattern at the tempo that, that I'd like uh, for the repetition range that I'd like. And then from there, if we wanted to, instead of just adding more load, we could in, enhance the stability demand. So maybe we, you know, change the pulling pattern from a bilateral pattern to an alternating arm pattern where now you have to, you have to deal with some different stresses through the core and the trunk and through the, through the scapula and, and shoulder. Maybe you, then you go to a reciprocating pattern and then you go to a, a single arm pattern and then a single arm pattern with rotation. So all of those change the especially you start loading unilaterally changes the the stability demand of an exercise, even though I'm still on a machine. And so just looking at it from that perspective, not looking at it as, you know, what's the craziest unstable surface I could have my client work (laughs) on, but uh, just saying, look, how can I make something incrementally more challenging so that I get the, the response that I'm looking for, which ultimately is endurance, enhanced eccentric and isometric control and, and proper movement patterns it's a hard phase. It's a pain in the ass. People don't like doing it um, because it's hard. And so I mm-hmm. think that's another reason uh, why, you know, that may not be a focus of, of certain individuals training, but, you know, bringing it back to Matt kind of full circle. Um, when I was working with him while we were training at the gym, we did, we started in phase one of, of the OPT model and, and phase one doesn't mean you're, it, it's remedial. It doesn't mean you're, you know, you suck. It, it just means look, okay, based on how you've been training to this point based on you know what our assessment results show us this would be a great place to start and you know ultimately your ability to develop and express strength and power is going to be limited by your ability to stabilize and move properly and i think that's another misconception is that term stability 
stability doesn't always mean lack of movement. Stability means you're able to keep things in the right place while you're moving. And so, you know, that, uh, that's another key focus uh, of that phase. And so with Matt, you know, he had a few different goals. He wanted to put on some lean body mass and he wanted to get back into hooping and, you know, being able to dunk and all that stuff. And so we set him up on a three day a week, total body, you know, stabilization endurance program. Yeah. It worked really well for him, you know, but focusing on, like I said, eccentric isometric control higher repetition range, you're getting endurance in those uh, stabilizing muscles. Uh, you're able to maintain proper movement for, you know, longer durations. And, you know, he put on quite a bit of size too. I mean, we made some adjustments to his nutrition and, and uh, caloric intake, but I think he went from like 176 pounds to 192 in a little over four weeks. He was able to, Damn. you know, <laughs> <Holy> yeah. <laughs> shit. Massive. Yeah, no increase in body like fat percentage. Uh, one one pizza a night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of what at the time, uh, what, a lot of side, a lot of Cido gainer. Uh, yeah, you know, Cido gainer. Oh, yeah, bringing geez. it back. Because Matt's about what six two, six Yeah, yeah, he was a lean, lean, mean uh, machine uh, at one one seventy six, and then got him up to to one ninety two, and in short order. Uh, but still, you know, not only with the additional weight and no increase in body fat percentage, but that's when he could, you know, he could dunk. So he got, he got his springs back with, you know, still putting on six, what, 16 pounds. He was able to, to drop step and, and dunk, which he wasn't doing at 176 pounds. And so, nice. you know, the, the whole thing, and we've seen this over and over again too, where, you know, in athletes where uh, strength testing is important and power testing is important by getting them moving better, uh, you're basically taking the parking brake off and allowing their neuro, uh, neuromuscular system to, to perform <clears throat> to the level that it, it's capable of. And so, you know, that's what happened with Matt, obviously, you know, you get things firing and moving properly and, you know, the neuromuscular system's like, Oh, okay. I'm moving pretty well. Things are, things are working. Let's just, you know, let's, let's take the shackles off and we can, uh, we can recruit all these big muscles, like, like we know we're capable of. <clears throat> and that eccentric ISO combo, you can do a four, two, one count <coughs> on each rep, right? Yeah. So that was, uh, that was kind of the original tempo scheme. And so before second eccentric, two second ISO, and then one second concentric. So NASM, we've always used kind of a three, three values for the tempo. You can obviously add a fourth value there for the other isometric, uh, if you wanted to add another isometric piece in there. So and then you could choose what, what aspect of the exercise or, or lift you incorporate that isometric, right? Because it's one thing, <clears throat> just using a push-up as an example, it's one thing to, to do the isometric in the eccentric loaded position at the bottom mm -hmm. versus at the top. And so mm -hmm. you, could, uh, you could have some fun and add some variability that way too, depending on what, what your client wants to achieve. Because most people are just used to doing, uh, the, uh, <coughs> an entire rep takes them about a second and a half. Oh yeah, you're being generous. I, yeah. Am I being? Yeah, I think I'm being generous. I mean, yeah. yeah. It, okay, a second. I mean, literally, boom, yeah. boom, and that's it. So yeah. you bring that four, two, one in. Oh, oh yeah. you see people just like holy shit. Yeah, no, it's a game changer. And then that's where when you look at uh, just the volume and the amount of work, you know, when you think about it, we were probably doing like I said, we were doing three total body workouts a week three, three sets of, you know, 15 to 20 repetitions, ultimately, by the time we got to the end of, uh, end of the cycle and you add up the total time under tension, it's, it's massive, right? Yeah. So you don't need to do a ton of sets. <clears throat> no, no. 20 reps is you know, two minutes. Yeah, yeah. Basically. So then it's like, okay, then you can get a little bit creative with your programming. You know, everybody, everybody programs differently, but if you think about a typical person coming into the gym, like, all right, what am I working today? All right, I'm doing some chest. <clears throat> I'm doing some shoulders. They might do four different chest exercises, three to four sets of each. But, uh, you know, let's just keep the math easy. Let's say they're doing 10 reps. That's 10 seconds per set of time under tension, <laughs> yeah. right? With how people typically lift. So <laughs> what is that? That's 40 seconds of, of time under tension <laughs> per exercise. <laughs> And you know what's forty times four? It's one hundred and sixty seconds of uh, of time under tension for all those uh, exercises that you just did. Mm -hmm. So when you look at just the 
the cumulative number of reps. They're probably using load that's you know heavier than it needs to be. They're not controlling. <clears throat> they're not controlling the movement. They're not controlling the load, and so that's going to add some unnecessary, maybe some undesirable stress to the to the soft tissues. And they're not getting a favorable training response or training adaptation because they're not maximizing that time under tension, which we know is one of the key components to you know muscular development. That was something that when you look at the recommendations, especially in that uh, initial phase of the OPT model, and, and even you know some of the subsequent phases, is like, well, the volume's not that high. Like, well, it doesn't have to be because no. your your tempos are are high, and you're focusing on that. And then you know we also know that training frequency is very important. So instead of let's say focusing on a body part or or a movement pattern once or twice a week, you could focus on the same things three days a week. It was like, all right, well, I'm only doing, let's say I'm only doing one horizontal pushing exercise on Monday. It's not going to completely destroy me where I can't recover in two days if everything's on point. And then I could do a different horizontal pushing pattern, right? So you still get your variety and your variability, but instead of doing it all in one workout, you're doing it over the course of a week. And so it's, it's just a different way to look at programming, but it's worked, uh, it, it works really well if you, you know, kind of give it uh, the time and and attention. I'm not going to say that it deserves, but if you, you know, instead of just kind of looking at it and being like, oh, well, this doesn't make sense or this is lame, <laughs> I'm not even going to try it. Uh, if you, you know, take some of the time and actually implement it, it, it can results that you get. Yeah. I think that's an interesting conundrum for a lot of coaches is they kind of, they're tend, they tend to be in one camp or the other. So it's hard for them to kind of say, okay, let me bring a little of this in and combine it with a little of that. I mean, ultimately, it just comes down to adaptation, and you know that should that should drive everything you do in a training session. And I don't think trainers really think about that either. So when you look at you know periodization and the different the different outcomes that you get from a training program, <clears throat> most people or most trainers, I don't think, give that enough attention either. And there's a variety of different ways to to periodize and plan a, a program if. Uh, I've determined that, okay, my goal is to improve muscular endurance and enhance neuromuscular control, then everything in my program should be focused on accomplishing that. I talked about Trevor before, you know, he's, <clears throat> he's been in a number of uh, situations with, with clients and it is challenging, not just for him, but it's challenging for the, the different teams that he might be dealing with and the professionals on those teams. I mean, it's not easy when you have an outside professional working with one of your athletes, but if you're trying to improve stability and neuromuscular control overall, you're not just going to get that from doing like one or two exercises in a workout. You have to look at you know, what's going to happen over the course of cycle, everything, every pattern, every movement that you do, if you're trying to optimize that particular response should be geared towards that. It's not just doing one, let's say one exercise on a single leg and saying, yeah, we're doing stability training. You know, that's not, not necessarily going to cut it. So I think the key is, all right, what outcome are you shooting for? And that outcome is driven by certain variables and stressors. And you need to incorporate that into into the program in order to get that result. And so we know different when you look at, you know, the specific adaptation to imposed demands, you've got mechanical specificity, you've got metabolic specificity and neuromuscular specificity. You know, all those are different parameters that you can use to influence, you know, the stress that you put on the body and and how it responds to that stress. And that's what the OPT model does. It just gives you a blueprint to be able to apply those different types of specificity to the body that you're working with uh, in order to get whatever get to whatever goal uh, you, you want to accomplish or they want to accomplish rather focused on the client but um, yeah so that first phase is is huge I don't think people give it enough credit and then you know from there you get into strength endurance which is kind of a hybrid phase where you know you can perform a, a superset of uh, more traditional strength focused exercise with more of a stabilization focused exercise uh, immediately after. So similar biomechanical pattern and muscles being challenged, but the environment is going to change. And so, you know, an example of that might be, you know, barbell bench press or heavy dumbbell bench press followed by uh, a push-up variation of, uh, of some sort. The first exercise is going to be done at more of a moderate tempo, still way slower than most people are used to. You know, two seconds eccentric, two 
two seconds concentric, more of a continuous kind of repeating pattern. And then the second exercise is going to be more stability, that slower uh, eccentric and isometric emphasis, three, like a three, two, one. So you're still looking at a ton of time under tension. And then to develop that endurance, uh, your rest periods are going to be a little bit different to, to stretch the things. And then from there, you get into what we'll now call muscular development training, which is, you know, really a versatile phase. You could focus on hypertrophy goals, lean body mass gain, maybe some of your, you know, metabolic higher intensity style, uh, styles of training could fit there too. So basically an opportunity for you to mix, uh, volume, uh, time under tension and, and, um, different rest periods and work to rest ratios to be able to get the body to respond uh, a certain way for the goal of muscular development and work capacity. And then from there, we've got max, uh, maximum strength. So heavy weight, low reps, there's a ton of different ways you can structure a program to develop max strength. And then from there, we've got two power oriented phases. One is what we just call phase. We just call it power, which is probably more basic than it should be. The original name of the phase was elastic equivalent training, but essentially it's, it's a form of contrast training. So you do a heavy, heavy compound exercise followed by an explosive exercise using a similar pattern. And so that was, you know, that's the other thing is contrast training, PAP, post-activation potentiation. You know, that's something that's more common now and, and that people do, but when Dr. Clark first developed the OPT model, you know, back in 99, 2000, like nobody had really heard of it. It was in the research and there were some, there was some good stuff track and field and and working with, you know, Olympic, Olympic lifters and track and field athletes, but it definitely wasn't mainstream. And so, you know, I think that kind of vision and and foresight and, you know, some of that stuff I think is underappreciated when, when people look at NASM and the OPT model or, you know, the think about the OPT model where, you know, again, many of the things that we know as commonplace now, foam rolling, NASM was the first uh, fitness certification to introduce foam rolling to the gym. I mean, they, Mm -hmm. uh, before that, you would only see it in rehab, rehab settings uh, typically. So the concept of assessment, looking at movement patterns, focusing on improving range of motion and mobility, and, you know, some of the different styles of training that are more popular now, you know, a lot of that was, uh, you know, we've been doing for over 20 years. And I don't think, uh, don't think it, people make that connection sometimes. So, so yeah, it's been fun. Uh, and then the final, the final phase is max power training. So that's just, you know, high velocity. You're, you're just trying to, you know, you're trying to peak for a competition or a particular event, maximize performance and power output. You know, there's certain variable, acute variable scheme uh, that you would follow for that. And so those are the different phases of the model and you can guide somebody through those phases however you like and whatever uh, based on whatever's appropriate for their their goals and then there's the linear approach to periodization where you can you know go from one phase to the next and you know spend a certain amount of time in each or you can you know use more of an undulating or you know micro dosing style where when your client reaches a particular level you can you know have them train in in multiple phases over the course of a cycle. And so you may not see maximal development or improvement in any one area, but you might see small changes and improvements in multiple areas work really well for a lot of people. Would you ever structure a session where you're using multiple phases? So let's just say like taking some of the power stuff, you know, putting that in the beginning of the session. And then for the strength stuff, now we were in the stabilization phase. Yeah, again, it goes kind of back to the rigidity uh, or the inflexibility of the the model. But yes, you can uh, you can absolutely combine phases. You know, you may have clients where you know maybe they're more advanced in one one aspect of their training than in others, or maybe lower extremity is is uh, able to do certain things, and the upper extremity is is not. So maybe you're training in different phases uh, for different things between the upper and lower body, or you know, one of the, if you look at our programming template, there are different sections within the programming template. And so the first, the first section is really more of a movement preparation uh, section where you can incorporate your mobility work, whether it's, you know, self-myofascial techniques, rolling, percussion, you know, whatever your, your tool of choice is. 
followed by some flexibility or stretching techniques. Again, whatever you feel is appropriate. And then you would get into some activation work. So a lot of latitude in terms of how that's interpreted. And then from there, you would get into, you could get into more of your higher, maybe neural demands or more complex exercises if you need, or skill development work could go there. So yeah, if you're incorporating plyometrics or some power, some elements of power, you could put them there prior to getting into the you know, the resistance training portion of the template. But what we try to do is we try to keep, you know, there's, when you look at power training, for example, or plyometric training, there's different, there's different styles that you can incorporate within plyometric training. You know, there's more reactive type training. Mm -hmm. There's, there are elements where you can incorporate maybe more of an emphasis on eccentric control and isometric control. And so, you know, those kind of follow the goal of each of the different phases of the OPT model. And so even though somebody might be in, let's say, phase one, where the overarching goal is stability and endurance, you could still incorporate plyometric activities in that phase. They would just be, the focus would just be a little bit different. It wouldn't be on developing maximum elasticity. It might be working to improve eccentric and isometric control while somebody does uh, a particular so almost like, you know, jumping as high as you can and then landing and, you know, landing mechanics, controlling, le- pausing in that squat at the bottom. Exactly. Or not, yep. uh, not a full squat, mm-hmm. but yeah, wherever you, come where down, you would jump from. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever you come down, sticking the landing, you know, landing with control, making sure you're landing on the appropriate part of the foot, uh, making sure everything's in alignment and then reinforcing that position before, you know, repeating, uh, repeating the pattern. You can. And then you can regress that by, you know, jumping up onto a box You can progress it by jumping down off of a box, right? Where the landing forces are going to be magnified, you know, jumping down, you can change planes of motion. So yeah, there's a lot of ways to progress, regress and, and vary the exercise uh, stimulus so that your client gets better and, and has a good experience. You don't have to do the same crap every single time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just it's a, it's maybe a different way of looking at programming, but you know, when you, it, it's training with intention, essentially, you know, you're not, you're not just going in and working out. You've got a, you've got a bit of a structure to, to the program and you have some intended outcomes that you're working toward uh, achieving. I don't think, I don't think trainers do that enough and I'm generalizing. There's some great trainers who certainly do that, but I'd say the industry as a whole doesn't, doesn't do a good job of that where you're assessing your client, you're identifying their goals you're developing a program based on those goals and then you're reevaluating to make sure that you're staying on track and progressing the way that you need to be. And not only is that beneficial for the trainer to figure out if what they're doing is working, but it's also beneficial for the client to know that they're getting better and there's value in working with the trainer. Like if the trainer never reassesses or never does anything to, to demonstrate that their client is improving, <clears throat> you know, most clients, they, they don't always see the new versions of themselves. You know, they kind of tend to see who they were before they, maybe before they started training. And so that reinforcement and, you know, is really important, not only for them, but again, for the trainer to, to demonstrate their value and that, you know, they're, what they're doing is working. And, you know, it's, it's been a good investment for the, the person who's, uh, who's working. With them. I think the other thing too is, is I, we're always making training kind of the stuff that you wouldn't do on your own. Right. And so our job as coaches is to get them to do stuff that they don't want to do on their own, but then at the same time, be able to give them stuff that's going to be fun. Right. But then also be able to continue to track all the stuff that they don't want to do, but show them that this is the improvement that you're making either with load range of motion increase. Yeah. Something they can gauge. Right. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's an activity at home that they do that's gotten much easier right like, hey i need to be able i can't and now i can reach up and i can go grab that box off out of the shelf yeah exactly yeah or i can i can put my shoe on <laughs> I mean, exactly uh, yeah basic yeah. stuff but tangible you know and, and relevant to them and obviously with athletes and you know more performance driven clients it, it may be a little bit easier sometimes you know if you're working with a golfer you know distance now with all the other tools they have you know you can see velocity and and all those other things, you know, those, those measurables are, uh, are important to show them that, that what they're doing is, is paying off. So, and for a golfer, sometimes it's just them being able to play 18 holes. Yeah. Probably the majority of golfers, well, right? they want to hit it further and they want to be able to play. <laughs> they want to <laughs> be able to play, right? And hit yeah. it as far as possible. Yeah. 
and not but, uh, yeah. not hate themselves afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> that's the big key thing because a lot of people will get through the they'll get through the round and then they're just laid up for a couple of days afterwards. Yep. So I mean, if you can bring that person to the point where he or she can continuously continue to play golf, then you're going to have a pretty loyal client right there. Oh yeah. Well, Tony, it was a pleasure having you on, brother. A lot of great information. We're looking forward to the webinar coming up, man. Yeah, yeah a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, uh, February 18th. We've already, we got to pitch that, man. So, yeah, February 18th for all the NASM people out there. We're looking forward to getting on to that. So, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Yeah, looking forward to having you guys and looking forward to getting uh, getting into, um, you know, all things stick mobility. And Obviously, your guys' background, I think, would be super interesting, obviously, for uh, for our audience and then, you know, the the evolution and development of, of the sticks and the system. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you guys on. You know, if there's if there's any interest, I think as part of our partnership, there's a, a discount for NASM education. Would you guys be cool if I, you know, threw yeah, the code yeah, out yeah, there? Absolutely. We yeah, could put, it in, put yeah. it in the show notes too. Yeah, this is kind of an exclusive to the Stick Mobility family. It is Stick Mob, S-T-I-C-K, mob 35 so stick mobe 35 uh, basically it's a 35 percent discount on nasm uh, cpt and our specializations as well as uh, we have a group fitness instructor certification as well that they can purchase uh, using that discount so it's 35 percent off good for most everything on the nasm site we're getting ready to launch our new cpt7 which is a uh, an update to our you know, flagship personal trainer certification. Uh, I think that's launching next week. This will be February 10th. So yeah, the, the discount, use that promo code uh, at checkout and you should get that 35% off. So exclusive to Stick Mobility fam, Stick Mob 3.5. Anyway, appreciate you guys, um, you know, letting uh, letting me share that. I know that you guys have some discounts too that we'll be, uh, we'll be highlighting for uh, the NASM audience. So, yeah, yeah. you know, love to, to be able to... Uh, extend the love both ways so yeah i would i would definitely take advantage of that um nasm discount i know so when i started my personal training career you know i went through the nasm cpt and and also the ps and cs and it you know it built a really good foundation of the way i look at things now that's awesome man i'm glad to hear it obviously for me too (laughs) and you mentioned the ces i think the ces we'll probably talk more about this in a couple weeks when you guys are on but you know that that specialization. I think there's just so much alignment and synergy with uh, with stick mobility. You know, it covers a lot of the things that we talked about earlier on in the in the show today. When you assess somebody's movement, uh, you look for you know movement tendencies that are less than ideal. Uh, those can be caused by a number of different things. And so then, you know, through that CES, you can kind of narrow it down through specific mobility assessments. So you can isolate different movements and see you know if there's limitations or restrictions that need and would warrant specific programming that, you know, once you address that and improve those limitations and mobility would allow the collective, you know, system to move better. Uh, and obviously, you know, mobility is more than just uh, improving range of motion. You have to be able to control that range of motion in all three planes. And that's where the sticks, you know, to me become invaluable not only as a, an assistive prop sometimes when when you might need it but you know as a resistive tool as well to create tension and really reinforce the control strength and stability within those new ranges of motion so you know i'm like i said i'm stoked to have you guys on in, in a couple of weeks so we can dive deeper into that but yeah for stick mobility family and, and listeners if you already have a personal training credential or strength and conditioning credential the CES specialization, I think, you know, is one of the best things you can do for any population that you work with. And that system, as I mentioned before, is is what we use with our elite athletes and we use it with our, our everyday clients. So having that system in place just allows you to apply and scale it and modify it to whoever's in front of you. Um, the programming is one thing, but being able to figure out what to do, that's that's another. And that's that's where that systematic approach to Know, kind of identifying what what you need to work on is is really important and the CES gives you that we just launched the textbook is a second edition but the the course is in its third iteration the textbook was just just published uh, last month and so the the new course everything's updated using the latest evidence uh, based and evidence informed guidelines 
obviously evidence-based not only includes the research, but there's a clinical application piece and, you know, the client, the client component too. So it's taking, taking all of those elements. Yeah. We'll have you on letting, soon again. We'll chat, yeah. we'll chat about some other topics and uh, yeah, we'll look forward to it, brother. Appreciate I love it, man. it. I love it. Who's your Super Thanks Bowl so pick? Oh yeah, who's your, yeah? Before you leave, yeah, I gotta go with uh, with the Bucks. Yeah, me yeah. too, man. I'm going with how going with you, Tom. You gotta go with Tom. <laughs> you got dude. The greatness is how can you say no? I, I mean, it's gonna be it's not, gonna yeah, be a tough one. Root, how can you not dude, root for for the, the Chiefs? Are pretty amazing. Most people would kill to pl- be in ten playoff games. This son of a bitch is in his tenth <laughs> Super Bowl. <laughs> I mean, the it's guy has the guy has won two full seasons worth of playoff games. That's unreal. that's just ludicrous. It is. It is. Yeah, you can't help but root for that. So yeah, that's who I'm who I'm pulling for. Well, uh, I think what will be even crazier is when somebody, if and when somebody surpasses what he's done, I think that'll be just mind boggling. Yeah, I guess if there is a guy, it's the guy that he's playing against. True, but but think of it, he's got to stay healthy. Yeah, yeah, his receivers. His mean, well, the supporting Ty- cast Tyree has Hill's to still be there. The last twenty years, so many uh, variables. Yeah, that go so into, many variables, uh, man. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you, you may hate the greats. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you may hate him, you may hate Tom Brady, but you got to respect his greatness, man. I'll tell you, it's just incredible to see. Absolutely. Well, and you look at some of the greats in uh, in all the major sports. I mean, there's just uh, that's why there's only a few of them. I mean, there's there's only, so many. Yep. That, all right the factor into being able to do uh, what they've been able to do for so long. And at the level that they have you know, staying healthy, is certainly a big part of it, you know, support of your teammates, the coaching. I mean, there's just so many things that could cause you to go the other direction. Right. Big time, big time. Well, awesome. thanks everyone out there. Thank you for joining us. And until next episode, be good to each other. <laughs> <laughs>